0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the clinical Science podcast. My name is Dr Panarella. Today, the focus of this podcast, maybe we're gonna call it i don't know podcast twenty six a twenty seven I don't know it depends on your uh depends on what you favor but uh anyway, it's a lot been going on in the world, and I'm gonna take a couple of minutes to you talk about something that will segue into veterinary medicine. Uh, but it was too juicy to, for me to to read, and then it made me think about being precise in language. And I, I'm not going to get political here, but what I'm going to say is, and when you hear but, people are, oh my God, what's he really going to say? Anyway, uh, I, I'm a person that really enjoys understanding things. And when I don't understand things, it it's it's doesn't sit well with me. But I, I, uh, I'm interested in law and how not how laws are written, but what the law actually says in a statute, let's say. So I tend to gravitate towards. Well, I definitely like this is a little personal, but I definitely enjoy a good courtroom uh, movie, and there's quite a few of them out there. I think in an alternate world. I would have been a good lawyer because everything really hangs on language, and that's really the thrust of what this little segment here is. It's language, and there's an attorney named Jonathan Turley. He's easily found on the internet. It's T-U-R-L-E-Y is his last name. He's a well-respected attorney, and he writes on constitutional law. And he had a uh, on his he has a web page, and he pretty much every day is writing something and he wrote um he he copies if he puts a a story out say the new york post or something it'll be on his web page he'll reference it and he had one talking about the use of language by the media and the current situation is in israel in gaza he said he points out that some of the media will not use the term terrorist for Hamas. And he proposes that that's really obviously, and I think if you're a sane person, that's really an inaccurate statement. They are terrorists, but a lot of the media is afraid to use that term. And it got me thinking about language and how critical language really is. And even in our profession, my, here's my segue to our profession, We are constantly, I think, searching for ways to, if you're a veterinarian, let's say, or even a veterinary technician and you have to talk to the general public, we're constantly, I hope you're constantly thinking of ways to better explain things to lay people and or when you're writing a medical record, you want to be precise. You want to be accurate in your descriptions and you don't want to make things better sound better than they are if you're talking to somebody sound worse than they are you want to be accurate you want to use language so i think language i think it's one of the th- things that really separates us from the rest of the uh, animal kingdom in this world is our language yes and it's also partially about how you say it but In a medical record, you need to be precise. You need to be accurate. So learning all the terms that you can to describe something and also to translate what you are seeing,
1: handling a patient,
0: or uh, you're doing a physical exam. You need to be accurate in your descriptions. You need to be concise, you know, short, get get it down quickly, but you also need to be accurate. And language is important, and there is nothing wrong with being accurate in your language. People's reactions to things or people's reaction. if you have to give some bad news to a client, it's not simple <laughs> you know, and you might be upset yourself, which has happened to me as well. You need to deliver that calmly and coolly and here's a little tip for people if if you haven't gotten gotten to this stage in life i'm I'm older obviously than I used to be, which is a blessing. Uh, because you do learn things. And one of the things that I learned, and this was a hard lesson to learn, it took me a, took me many, many decades to realize this, is that you may feel a certain way, but then there's reality. And sometimes they line up and sometimes they don't. So we are emotional creatures. We tend to have emotional reactions to most things. I think a lot of people in this field, especially a lot of veterinarians, we might be not that we're more rational, but I think the rationality side of us is more appealing than the emotional side. And you might feel a certain way, and reality might be a certain way, but if your 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 emotion does not line up with reality, your emotion does not make things correct. Your, as some people would say, your lived experience is your lived experience, but it's really irrelevant. It's what are we dealing with in front of us, and how are we going to handle it? You know, what sort of plan needs to be done or when you're speaking to people. So you can have your emotional reaction. You can feel the way you feel. But reality is reality. And I think that's part of what we're dealing with today in society. People do not want to acknowledge reality. And in in our profession, it's our job for our profession and for our patients and for the clients who we're really working for. Without the clients, there really is no veterinary medicine they deserve to be respected and one of the ways to respect them is you speak in terms that they can understand but you also tell them the truth and there is only one truth there's nobody's lived experience you need to express the truth so i will do you all a favor in the notes i will put down the timing on this so anybody that wants to bypass my my rant so to speak uh I'd be happy to do that so that you can just listen to the medical portion of this. But I realize that, you know, nobody really wants to hear anybody complain. And as I've started saying lately, a- anybody can complain for five minutes. So in my world now, I say you get five minutes to, to rant or complain or what have you, and then we're done. So this is my rant. So I might be ranting a little bit more in um, hopefully educational and informational rants. But anyway, a rant, a rant nonetheless. So. The remainder of today's podcast is going to talk about, we're picking up on corticosteroids. And I thought that that was an interesting podcast, the the beginning of corticosteroids, and it got me thinking. I had to do some traveling, but while I was traveling, you know, I don't think that we really appreciate, and maybe I didn't express it as well as I would have liked in the first podcast, but corticosteroids are much more potent than non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. They, have, they they suppress inflammation much more than non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories do not have any physiological impact, meaning that they're not required in the body, but corticosteroids are an important part of our physiology and animals' physiology. So let's get into side effects of corticosteroids. There's a couple of really big ones, and I'm going to use some abbreviations here uh when i counsel a a a pet owner on a, on a pet that i've given steroids to and again it's steroid dependent right the steroid dexamethasone if you recall has very little mineralocorticoid effects meaning it's not really going to affect the sodium and water balance in the body whereas a steroid such as prednisone or prednisolone will ha- has more uh mineralocorticoid effects which is is to their benefit depending on, on what you're using those steroids for. But dexamethasone will have very little of, of this side effect, and it's called PU, PD, and PP. PU <laughs> sounds exactly what it is. It's abbreviated PU, it's polyuria, it's excessive urination, and that happens by the inhibition of antidiuretic hormone in the kidney. And the kidney sensitivity to antidiuretic hormone is um, antidiuretic hormone keeps your kidneys uh, from from processing uh, or creating too much urine because then you would become dehydrated. So that's that inhibition causes the kidney to to increase its production of urine. P.D. is exactly what it sounds like. That's polydipsia because there's. There's excessive urination. The body is triggered. And it's a very low threshold for the body to be triggered to consume more water. So animals on um, certain steroids, again, you have to pick your poison, such so as prednisone here, they will urinate more and they will drink more. And PP is polyphagia. And if you recall, one of the effects of steroids is to uh, increase uh, glycogen production in the liver. And that is probably triggering the animal to consume more food. Uh, so polyphagia means just eating more. So animals might be more hungry, and they might be nudging, you know, bothering the owner for more food. Uh, so that's PUPD and, po- uh, and polyphagia. Also, the respiratory rate can be increased because the metabolism is increased. And that's, that can be with almost any dose. It depends. It's animal-dependent, but any dose of steroid, of uh, corticosteroids can do that. Chronic use of corticosteroids can lead to muscle wasting, right? Thinning of the muscles, fat redistribution, which would be very similar to Cushing's disease. Cushing's disease is hyperadrenal corticism. I think I mentioned that in the first first part of this podcast, that Cushing's disease is a result of, and again, there was a Dr. Cushing at some point in human medicine, but we still use that term in veterinary medicine. And there's either a tumor of the adrenal gland putting out too much corticosteroids, cortisol, or there's a tumor in the uh, pituitary gland, which, again, is going to secrete a hormone to trigger the adrenal glands to release more cortisone. So there's a tumor somewhere. Um, We can have insulin antagonism, and that can create diabetes mellitus or worsen diabetes mellitus because, again, of the alterations in the sugar Production the body is going to uh, going to um, create more sugar and it's going to antagonize insulin and insulin helps drive pushing glucose into the cell so if you antagonize insulin insulin's not going to work as well we can have hyperlipidemia which you don't you know in in veterinary medicine is not really a huge issue in people hyperlipidemia is an issue but we might notice that more uh, when we took uh, if you take blood and then you spin the blood down, what remains when you spill out the blood to clot, and then you spin it down as serum, you're going to find that there's way more lipids. It looks kind of like a milky, uh, creamy serum. And sometimes it's slightly pink. Again, long-term, we mentioned Cushing's uh, disease, long-term use of corticosteroids. We can have adrenal gland at- atrophy. Remember, I mentioned that feedback mechanism. And when there's more exogenous, that means drug that we're giving, and just means it's coming from the body, but exogenous is outside the body, then the adrenal gland is going to shrink because that feedback mechanism is actually being triggered to suppress um, the hormone, again, coming from the pituitary gland. So there's no need for the adrenal gland to, to make as much uh, corticosteroid or cortisol as is required for the body. And that can be called secondary hypoadrenocorticism, which is the opposite of Cushing's disease. Hypoadrenocorticism is is abbreviated. It's called Addison's disease. Again, there's a Dr. Addison at some point. And with Addison's disease, the problem there is that cortisol is is an important hormone in the body. And if you don't have it or if an animal doesn't have it, they do not respond well to uh, shock so some of the clinical signs of an Addisonian crisis are vomiting, diarrhea, lethargy, weakness, and circulatory collapse, where the animal's not being out as much blood. And of course, secondarily, oxygen is not getting out to the body, which can also lead to death. So I have seen adam- animals in Addisonian crises, and it's it's uh, it is a strange it is a strange problem. Again, we mentioned that we can do some Some diagnostics using corticosteroids, especially dexamethasone, uh, which uh, I think I had already mentioned in the first podcast on corticosteroids. Uh, We can have hepatopathy or hepatomegaly. Hepatopathy means that the liver is not functioning as well, or hepatomegaly means that the liver is enlarged. And this is due to the glycogen deposition in the hepatocytes. Hepatocytes are just the individual liver cells. We're also going to have, uh, we have not talked much about clinical pathology. What here is, we're going to have an increase in alkaline phosphatase, which is abbreviated ALP, and alanine aminotransferase, which is ALT. And so the way I can think about and actually discuss with clients ALT and ALP is that AL, ALP is an enzyme. Again, ALT and AST. ALT, and so many abbreviations, it starts to get a little crazy. ALP and ALT are enzymes that are coming from the hepatocytes, and they are a normal part of the body's uh, physiology, meaning that if, if we were to take some blood and we do a serum chemistry, and we're looking at serum chemistries, look at internal organ function, and one of the organs that serum chemistry looks at is liver function, ALP and ALT are normal they are found in normal quantities and that's how it's reported out on a on a blood test on the paperwork ALP I generally think about as how much the hepatocytes are working so the hepatocytes are cells right cells are always functioning that's the way that an animal moves cells are really at the at the core of how the body functions and ALP is normal because the cells have to function to bring in oxygen, to bring in glucose. We, I had mentioned that electrolytes come in and out of the cell to allow the cell to function and create electricity. And ALP is pretty normal. Now, if you're giving a drug such as a corticosteroid, the liver cells are going to work harder so that way. That means that we're going to have an increase in ALP. Again, short-term, not really going to have a much, much of a change, but again, if you're using an immunosuppressive dose, of a corticosteroid or an animal's on a corticosteroid for a long term, you're going to have increases in ALP. ALT, again, with elevations, again, more of a chronic use, although we can have um, iatrogenic or idiopathic. Uh, Animals can have an idiopathic drug reaction and it doesn't matter how much drug that animal gets, it's going to have a reaction and sometimes it's, it's based on the liver. But ALT, is a function of cellular damage so the cells are being damaged in the liver so if you start getting increases in alt you're going to have liver you're going to have liver cell damage and alt increases in alt are generally go along with an animal being icteric and that's something else i have not talked about icterus is when there's liver cell damage the uh, the cell contents are then out in the blood, and that leads to yellowing of the skin, yellowing of the mucous membranes, yellowing of the sclera of the eye. The sclera is the white part of the eye, so an animal or even a human being is a consequence. If you were to look at them and they're yellow, that means they have a liver problem, that there's liver cell damage. We have prostaglandin inhibition, so we can get GI ulceration. And I'm going to repeat. The, I'm going to say uh, what I'm saying next. I'm going to repeat again. But you do not combine. Uh, I at least this is what I was taught, and I never did this in private practice. Is you do not combine non-steroidal anti-inflammatories with steroids because you just there's a synergistic effect when you're using two of these drugs. You're significantly then depressing prostaglandins, and we learned again in the first podcast that prostaglandins they help protect the lining of uh, the GI tract. and When you suppress the prostaglandins, there's no, you're, you're just allowing ulcers and uh, possibly a perforation recur to, to the GI tract. So you never use non-steroidals with corticosteroids. Again, chronic use, thinning of the skin due to inhibition of collagenase, and you can get alopecia, which is hair loss, and then alopecia also is a clinical sign of Pushing's disease. And again, here's another term that I haven't used very much, bilateral and symmetric alopecia. So a lot of times in a patient, uh, an animal that comes to mind with Cushing's disease generally has a pot belly. They have fat deposition in the abdomen. The skin is thin and they, they start having hair loss. And bilaterally symmetrical means it's happening on both sides of the body. And symmetric means that you're getting hair loss that's even on both sides of the patient. You can get calcium deposition into the skin <clears throat> That's a special disease called calcinosis cutis. With steroid use, you can get sodium retention. And um, as I said previously, we follow uh, water will follow sodium. So if you're retaining sodium, you're going to retain water. Also a loss of potassium. Sodium is abbreviated NA. Potassium is abbreviated as K. Those are electrolytes right there in the... Uh, Table of elements sodium and, and potassium that's where the k comes from uh and you can develop and this is a little uh this is a little wonky per se this is more clinical pathology. you can develop hypokalemic alkalosis and and if you think okay, that's a lot to say right there. the body is trying to maintain balance right so there's an appropriate amount of sodium and there's an appropriate amount of potassium there's more sodium all sodium and potassium are required by the cells for functioning there's more sodium in the bloodstream than there is potassium. Sodium is more of an extracellular electrolyte, and potassium is more of an intracellular, meaning inside the cell electrolyte. So the levels of potassium in the bloodstream are generally very low, comparatively to sodium. And hypokalemic alkalosis means that the body does not have enough circulating. Hypokalemia means there's a, there's a deficiency of potassium in the body, and then the, and then the body is... The, the body... Again, it's trying to balance out. It, it likes homeostasis. So alkalosis means that the body is more alkaline than it should be. You can get some behavioral changes. You can get hyperactivity. That sort of goes along with the increased metabolism and the canting or increased respi- respiratory rate. And consequently, you're going to get an increase in the heart rate. We can get immunosuppression, and sometimes that's exactly what we want. Right? Right? Corticosteroids can be used to, to suppress the inflammatory response, but there's a consequence of that. It can also increase susceptibility to infection. So an increased susceptibility to infection may obviously not be a good thing. It can reactivate latent infections, although generally that's not as big a deal. But as an example, in cats, the use of of corticosteroids, especially in the eye, can can worsen or trigger a a herpes uh, infection to really create much more damage into the eye. So in general, corticosteroids are not used in the eye of cats or the herpes infection. Uh, you can get an increase in urinary tract infections and joint infections. I had mentioned that corticosteroids can be injected intra-articularly into a joint, and if that's not done as a sterile procedure, you can get septic arthritis. Now, long-term use of a corticosteroid, you want to taper or wean the animal off. Again, because primarily you want the adrenal gland to start becoming reactive. If there's adrenal gland atrophy or suppression or both, and you need to taper the animal off so that you don't develop an Addisonian crisis. And consequently, all this technically is not a side effect, but Corticosteroids are teratogens, meaning that you can cause genetic mutations in any offspring. We don't generally see too much of that in veterinary medicine, but obviously, human medicine would be a gigantic concern for a patient and their child. So, some precautions with the use of corticosteroids. Any animal that's dehydrated has has pre-existing GI disease. Again, it depends what the GI disease is, because we might be using corticosteroids to treat the GI disease, liver or kidney disease. Again. It's all dependent on the patient and the use of the uh, medication. Endocrine disorders, such as corticism or diabetes mellows, we can exacerbate those diseases, which means to make them much worse. I will repeat here, any drug interactions, non anti-inflammatories and corticosteroids generally should not be used together, can really increase their risk of a uh, of GI ulceration or perforation. Using corticosteroids around any any vaccination is not good because corticosteroids will suppress the inflammatory response and the immune system, and then the animal may not even react to develop antibodies that, that you vaccinated the animal against. And uh, you, using hormones, you can have synergy with corticosteroids and administering hormones. So generally, you would not want to use them together. Recommendations for you: short term. Generally, there's not going to be much consequence. There's not really much concern. But long-term, I would recommend a, a CBC, right? A CBC is a complete blood count. It looks at red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. The serum chemistry looks at internal organ functions, such as the kidney and the liver, and then a urinalysis. And a urinalysis, again, I will repeat, that is a great tool to look at kidney function, especially how well the kidney can concentrate urine, because that's a that urine concentration, the ability for the kidney to concentrate urine is extremely important. Remember, again, I think about homeostasis, the body, if the body is dehydrated, you don't, a patient will not make a lot of urine. If the body is overhydrated, the urine is going to be typically very clear because the body's trying to get rid of that excess water. And depending on how long, if an animal's on long-term, Repeat CBCs and chems are going to be, and urinalysis will probably be recommended. Also, the urinalysis, remember I had mentioned that urinary tract infections are possible. So urinalysis will also look at uh, for the presence of bacteria. And that's going to depend on if it's a cystocentesis, which is a sterile means of, of obtaining blood where you put a needle into the urinary bladder and extract the urine, or it's a free catch with a cystocentesis, there should be no bacteria visible found in the sample, whereas a free catch means that you you place a container, uh, hopefully a clean and sterile container under the patient while they're urinating to collect that urine. So there, there can be bacteria in a free catch. Uh, therapeutic use, there's quite a few. I've already mentioned some, so we're going to use them as anti-inflammatories, for diseases of the skin, the eye, the ear, of skeletal muscles, or skeletal muscles, the skeletal system, which generally could be osteoarthritis or muscular problems, problems in the muscles. Any, uh, any allergic disease you can use corticosteroids for, uh, chronic allergy problems such as atopy or atopic dermatitis, that's non-seasonal allergies. And typically in our patients, you're going to have uh, you can have in, inflamed skin, you can have red irritated skin, you can have hair loss, you can have pets that are chronic, have chronic ear infections, they can have chronic skin infections. A lot of the genesis of those are, are atopy. There's non-seasonal allergies there. Pets are, are pruritic. they're itchy, so they're going to be scratching excessively. Uh, I had mentioned otitis, that's ear infections. Otitis externa is is an ear an external ear infection? Meaning, it's not outside the ear; it's inside the ear. It's just how we break down the the ear com- the uh, parts of the ear. There's the external, uh, where the canal is, and there's quite a bit of skin in a lot of dogs. Occasionally, <laughs> a cat will come up with an ear infection, but if it's a chronic problem, a lot of those are triggered by allergies. The allergy dermatitis, just what it sounds like. Some animals are are will basically tear themselves apart from the bite of one flea. And when you talk about fleas, it's the saliva of the flea because fleas have to bite patients to take a blood meal. It is gross. It sounds gross. Even, even I get disgusted when I say things like that. But I've seen horrible cases of fleas in patients and vice versa. I've seen patients covered in fleas with hardly any reaction. And fleas can actually be fatal I know I'm uh, talking about uh, drug here for a minute, but fleas can be a horrible problem on an animal and can lead to its death because basically they're exsanguinating the animal. And actually, I probably already mentioned this in a podcast. My last case in veterinary school was a, an animal that was so covered with fleas, it went into cardiac arrest several times. So that's flea allergy dermatitis. Uh, respiratory diseases such as asthma, which is, uh, does happen in cats. Occasionally, you can use steroids for respiratory problems in dogs, but primarily it's a cat problem. And I had mentioned back in the heartworm episode, if you want to listen to that, that it's common for cats to develop a respiratory component uh, of, a, of an active heartworm infestation. Anaphylaxis or allergic reactions, especially if you're thinking about reactions after uh, a vaccine, or oh, let's say an animal's bitten by, you know, a multiple uh, bee or wasp things, as an example. I had mentioned OA, osteoarthritis. Nonsteroids usually are the mainstay, but occasionally patients do not respond well to nonsteroids, even though nonsteroids are very good. Again, I said that nonsteroids do not cover all of the pathways of inflammation versus a corticosteroid. Myositis, which is inflammation of muscles. Adrenal cortical insufficiency, Addison's disease. Uh, that is a disease that is primarily handled with mineralocorticoids. But occasionally animals can uh, benefit from the use of a glucocorticoid, such as, as prednisone or prednisolone. Introvertebral disc disease. In my hands, patients that have, you know, I'm using air quotes here, a slipped disc do much better when you give them steroids versus non-steroidal anti-inflammatories as long as the patient is, is ambulatory and has not lost um, sensation. Paresis where there's decreased, there's decreased feeling in the limbs or decreased use of the limbs or paralysis where they can't use the limbs at all, and that requires surgery, provided the owners have enough money to, to uh, go for a back surgery. I've had much better success with corticosteroids with intervertebral disc disease than non-steroidals. GI tract, we do use corticosteroids for GI disease, especially colitis. And there's some immune-mediated diseases such as lupus or pemphigus that are treated with corticosteroids. Lymphoma, corticosteroids can be used for lymphoma. They're only a short-term Benefit there, you don't cure lymphoma. Lymphoma is cancer of the lymph system. Those patients will generally have very swollen lymph nodes. Corticosteroids can help a patient feel better, but it's only a very short-term treatment. Or also, can be an adjunct to uh, to chemotherapy. Below the diseases, IMHA and IMTP. IMHA is immune-mediated hemolytic anemia where the body is basically breaking down the red blood cells. Corticosteroids are a mainstay of that therapy. And then IMTP is immune-mediated thrombocytopenia. Thrombocytopenia is lack of thrombocytes, thrombocytes are platelets. And immune-mediated thrombocytopenia means the animals is going to be very prone to bleeding. And again, corticosteroids are going to be a mainstay of, of therapy for that disease. And then septic shock. Steroids, a lot of research... If I go back for a minute and talk about the lymphoma, the adjunct use of corticosteroids for lymphoma treatment, depending on what studies you read, most of the studies I think in the modern era last, I'd say 10, 20 years are going to to recommend not using steroids because if you use steroids, if I remember correctly, for lymphoma, it can make the lymphoma, if the the owners decide to go for more extensive chemotherapy, it can make the, the cancer harder to treat. And there's controversy around septic shock and the use of corticosteroids. And I had mentioned one corticosteroid, methylprednisol and sodium succinate, which is the primary corticosteroid that's been studied in septic shock. And if you give that steroid within a certain window of time in septic shock, se- septic shock is collapse of the vascular system based on an infection. There has been some benefit to, to using the methylprednisol sodium succinate, solumidrol the trade name there is some benefit but it has to be given in a particular window of time and the problem is in a lot of veterinary medicine we're seeing patients way past if we're seeing an animal in shock we're seeing an animal many hours or maybe even days later so the use of 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 steroids may not be beneficial or what the research says but I had a discussion while I was gone. I had to do some continuing education. I went to a conference, and I had mentioned that during COVID, there was some great revelation. I'm using great sarcastically, if you can't tell, that human doctors were giving COVID patients, human COVID patients, dexamethasone. And I said to this person, I said, "There's, there was no veterinarian, and I say no veterinarian worked or salt, that... Veterinarians, you know, my take was really like finally they figured out like dexamethasone was was beneficial. Most veterinarians know, you know, we have a saying: no no patient dies without the benefit of steroids. You know, when you're running out of options, sometimes steroids are 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 beneficial, especially for a patient that that can die. You now again, it it depends on the circumstance, but a lot of infections, as I have said a tremendous amount of inflammation, and that is what was happening in human beings, and dexamethasone is a great drug to suppress inflammation, and voila, patients were getting better you know being given dexamethasone, and the media was hyping that like it was some great finding, and I said, well, what took them so long now? Listen, that's very biased on my part, because who knows how long human doctors had been administering dexamethasone to their patients. It could have been from day one. I don't really know that. I didn't really delve into that literature. But for the media to report it like it was a miracle finding, I thought, well, geez, if veterinarians had been in charge, we would have given dexamethasone very early on. So we, listen, I know I'm biased. Everybody's biased. We can't help it. We're human beings. So this is the follow-up. This is part two of corticosteroids. I hope that this has been helpful and informational. I think I've enjoyed giving you that, my five-minute rant. I think I will try to keep my rants to five minutes or less. It's okay. It is what it is. This podcast ran a little bit longer than I would like. I've been trying to shoot for that 20-minute, I think, sweet window, but sometimes things are what they are. After I edit this, this podcast will probably be a little bit shorter. But corticosteroids took took two two podcasts to cover, and I think that that should also show you how, how widely used they are, how potent they are how much good they can do, and some of the potential side effects. Remember, if you have a, an animal that you're concerned about, you're not sure what's going on, then please contact your contact your veterinarian if you are administering corticosteroids to your animal. Remember, follow all the prescription instructions. Watch out for any side effects. Please contact your veterinarian if there are side effects or you have any questions or concerns. And thank you for listening. Thank you for your attention. I hope this has been informational and educational, and I'll see you again soon. Thank you.